1 Corinthians 13. Very familiar passage. Very familiar passage. Deals with biblical love. And the verses that we'll cover today, we're only going to get through verses 1 through 3. Um, and so they may not be the most familiar verses in this chapter to you, but when we do get to love is patient and kind, those things, you have heard those words, you might have them stitched somewhere on your walls, you've probably received them in Hallmark cards. These are very familiar words in the Bible. But what I would like for us to be able to do in the coming weeks is to examine the love that we have. Is your love this kind of love? Or has it been shaped by some other kind of teaching about what love is from the culture? So before we do that, let's pray and then we'll read. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for Christ who came down from heaven to intervene in this world. And Lord, right now we do pray for the nation of Israel. We pray for the Jewish people. Um, Lord, please preserve life. Please break through in that region with the message of the gospel. Those people need to hear about Jesus like any other people around the world. They need to put their hope in him. And we ask God that these events that are taking place over there might lead more and more to see Jesus as the supreme king and ruler of the universe. They do not for the most part right now. And scripture tells us why. There is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel at this time while the Gentiles flock to their Savior. And we pray, God, for the day when they will turn their eyes to him. And maybe that day is getting close, or maybe that day is far off. But no matter what, we trust in our God who has a perfect plan. And we as your people are to be ones who are looking to Jesus during these times or in any time. And so, Lord, please fasten our hearts to his and we pray, Lord, for good things to happen halfway around the world as the gospel is preached. And we ask it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Our culture is in love with love. That's the way one article put it after analyzing the content of every Billboard Top 40 song since the 1960s. Our culture is in love with love. They determined that 70% of all pop music since that time has in some way been about love. I actually thought it might have been a little bit higher seems like almost every song that you listen to really is about love in some way. would even say really it's romantic love is the main thing that those songs are focusing on, but still, it's love. The idea of love is so common 
It's so basic, it permeates everything. And so surely if there is one subject that we as a culture are familiar with and understand, it's this one, right? Surely we know love. And no doubt we probably do understand what those songs are talking about. But when we open up our Bibles and see love there, do we understand that? Or do we just transfer the ideas that we have picked up from our culture and even those top 40 songs? Do we just have all those ideas inside of us and transfer those onto the Bible when we read it? I would like for us in the weeks ahead to take some time to re-examine love and allow God's word to shape our thoughts, to cut through the quick, to get in there and help us to understand better what love really is. It is a very foundational Christian concept. If we get this wrong, if we mess up love, in a sense, it's as if we've messed up everything. We don't even know how to live if we don't understand this. If one thing is indispensable in the Christian life, it is love. You cannot do without it. And because that word and that concept are everywhere out there in our culture, you and I might need to relearn it from the ground up, from the one who has made it. And so here's the guiding truth for today's message here in verses one through three. Love is the one indispensable characteristic in a Christian. It's the one thing that cannot be done without. Because without love, our words, our abilities, and our deeds have no value in the eyes of God. That is a strong statement, is it not? That's what we see right here in these verses, though. No value in the eyes of God. Because we're just jumping into the middle of a book that was written to a specific group of people 2,000 years ago, I think it's important to set the stage just briefly for why the Apostle Paul wrote this chapter as he did. He wrote it to a particular people in a particular time. He wrote it to the church in Corinth. And that church got its start on what we call Paul's second missionary journey. Corinth was a city that was particularly known for its vices. And so when we think of vice city America, what comes to mind? Generally speaking, right? Las Vegas. In the ancient world, Corinth was on the short list. It was also known as a vice city. God's grace, though, broke through into that place, as it does. God can conquer any vice. He can conquer any heart. Some of us just need to hear that this morning. Any heart can be penetrated with the gospel. And so it broke through into this place when the gospel was preached by Paul. And so those sinful people, they believed the gospel, they became children of God, but that does not mean that every sin inside of their hearts was immediately conquered or overcome in an instant. I think we can understand that, right? Sin still is in this room inside the hearts of God's people and not every sin has been completely conquered in your heart either. That was the case in Corinth. And one of the sins that especially stuck in this church was the sin of self or the sin of pride. 
I think we might be able to understand that one too. And so one-upsmanship, that was a common theme in this church. They were always comparing themselves to the other people, trying to determine where I'm at on the Christian ladder. Who's the most godly? Who's more useful to God? Who has the better gifts? And even who's following the better leader? They argued over Paul and Apollos and Peter. They all made factions inside the church and picked a leader for themselves. Well, they were trying to determine which group was the best group. Anything that they could argue over, it seems that they did. They were also truly Christians. Paul says that there in chapter 1. Like these were truly Christians. They had been saved, but sin was having its way in their hearts and needed to be corrected. Selfishness was dominating this church. And this was true also in the area of spiritual gifts. Supernatural abilities the Lord gives to his people. And God had particularly blessed the church of Corinth with a variety of gifts. But God gives these gifts back then, also here today, in the church of Jesus Christ at Kaz in Buffalo, God still gives gifts to his people, but he gives them not so that we can shine the light upon ourselves, to make much of ourselves so we can feel good in comparison to other people. No, he gives these gifts so that we will use them lovingly to serve others and build them up in the faith. Those gifts are always looking to pour themselves out on others, not shine the light on me. And so in Corinth, these gifts were being misused, and the only way to correct that was for Paul to teach them about the right way. He says that there at the end of chapter 12. If you have your Bible open, you look at the last verse there, he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. And he's talking about the way of love. They needed to relearn this basic Christian Principle. They need to learn the way of love. And here we are all these years later. I think we need to see this too. Not just to receive correction in our use of spiritual gifts, but because love is so foundational to all of the Christian life. Everything is impacted by our love. So to learn this way will help us in all that we do. And so if you, take, if you take these words from this chapter to heart and not just listen to the sermons about love on Sundays, but to think about these words, meditate on them throughout the week, conviction and correction will begin to happen across the board in your life. As a church member, yes. Do you want to be a better church member? have more meaningful church membership here, impact the lives of the other people in this place. If you learn the words here from the Apostle Paul, no doubt that will happen. Do you want to grow as a spouse, husband, wife? Do you want to have a more pure love, Christ-like love for your husband or your wife? I have to imagine that every person here who is married you have to say yes to that. So my hope is, is that 
you will begin to re-examine the love that you have for them. Start asking the question, why is it that I do what I do? As a parent, do you want to be a more loving parent? Do you want to represent Christ more faithfully in your home? Yes. As a friend, it's important to be a good loving friend to the people around you? Do you want to grow there? I would hope everybody in this room would say yes. Some of you all are in school and you interact with a lot of other kids. You may be a grown-up that is in school and so you're acting with other students, classmates. Do you want to be a better classmate to those that you come in contact with? I hope the answer is, is yes. A son or a daughter to your mom or your dad? Do you want to have more Christ-like love for them? Yes. Anywhere relationships are happening in your life, I think this word is for you. Every relationship, you need to grow in your ability to love those people as Christ has so loved you. Love matters deeply to him. It's the heartbeat of God. So as his people who represent him on earth, we need to be shaped by what he says love is, do we not? And not shaped by what the culture says love is. We are impacted by that. We are being taught about that from outside sources. We need it from God's word. So look with me at verses one through three. I'll read them one more time just to set the stage again for what I'm gonna be saying. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I think just a basic summary of these three verses would go like this, that it is possible to have a life filled with a great deal of Christian activity. And for all of that activity to have no value. So it's possible to be doing a lot of things, a lot of Christian things, busying yourself with the stuff of the Christian life and yet for all of that activity to have no real value. And you see that here multiple times in this verse where Paul says, but have not love. So you can do all of these things, be devoid of love, and none of that mean a thing. That's pretty incredible. Again, like self-assessment. Why do I do the things that I do? And so in all three of these verses, Paul mentions a certain kind of Christian activity or a certain kind of Christian service and he uses that phrase, but have not love. Love then gives meaning or value 
to the activities and services that we do. It gives meaning, value in the eyes of God. In verses 1 and 2, he makes mention of certain spiritual gifts that the Corinthians really valued, especially the gifts that other people can see in public. They wanted those. Why would you want those? Why those external gifts that everybody can see? Because everybody can see them, right? They want to be able to see how great I am in the service of God. In verse 3, then Paul mentions works of charity or self-sacrifice that people will often do in Christian service. Let's look at each verse one by one. In verse 1, Paul specifically targets the gift of tongues in that church. And so there were some who had this gift that just wanted to put it on display for other people in the church to see it. So they would start babbling publicly. Nobody could understand what they were saying. And Paul says, without love, you are no different than a drumbeat or a foot stomp. No different. You're just a noise. Everybody hears it, but that's about it. You're speaking, but you're saying nothing. Verse 2, he addresses those gifts where people speak on behalf of God. Prophets, preachers, teachers. Talks about them, how they speak powerfully, prophetically. And then those, wor- those who work miracles. He says they can move mountains with their faith. So again, these are the gifts that the people of Corinth wanted. And there's nothing wrong with wanting them for the right reasons. But that isn't what they wanted, it seems. They like to have the spotlight. They like the attention or the pat on the back, the feeling, the glory that comes from being up front as being known as somebody who serves the Lord, speaks for the Lord, does his work in a very special way. So Paul says that you can have all of these gifts of power and think you are something, but in the end, if without love, you're nothing. And then verse 3. I think this is the one that might be the most helpful to those who are here today. It's possible, he is saying, to make great sacrifices. Great sacrifices and yet do it all for nothing. You could give away everything you have and it still be an empty gesture. We read articles about the very wealthy who freely let go large portions of their money. I mean, astronomical amounts of money. But we're being told here that if love, this kind of love, is not the reason for their giving, it's as if they gave nothing away. But you don't have to be wealthy and give lots away for this to be the case in your life. You could be a poor man who spends all his time giving things away and yet never give one thing that pleases the Lord. We might, again, how? How could that be? Like, look at that guy. Look at that lady. They give away so much. How could that not please the Lord? Well, we're being told here, if it is not motivated by love, He looks on it as nothing done. And then he talks about the ultimate sacrifice, your own body. 
a willingness to endure great suffering, even death. And if that is not done in love for God or for others, nothing was truly gained. Usually when somebody gives up their life willingly for a cause, the thought is, is that this does gain something, whether for other people or for myself. But we're told here that is not the case. If you give up your life and love was not the motivating factor behind that, you have not gained anything. You have lost your life for nothing. And there are lots of martyrs out there for false religions. We are being told here they have given up their lives for lies. It will not be to their benefit. And there are many people out there who have given up great wealth and possessions, but only doing so so that other people will see them do it or so that other people will make much of them. Man, that guy's such a giver. He is so great. Look what he is always out there doing. All of his time seems to be devoted to that kind of service. But the only one who sees that person's heart is the Lord. And he will be the final determiner on who actually gave something. And the litmus test is whether or not it was given in love. So then, how do we ensure that our love does have value, that we are truly serving in biblical love? It starts with our relationship with the Lord. That's where this love that we are to serve others with comes from. It starts with Him. So the only assessment that really matters about your Christian progress, your abilities that you have, the activities that you spend your time doing, the only assessment that actually matters at all is God's. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter what they say. So often that could become why we do what we do. We just want applause. We just want to be known as something. So their opinion, the outside opinion, ultimately does not matter. My opinion of myself ultimately does not matter either. A lot is made today about self-esteem and just making yourself feel better. Well, I hope you feel some good about yourself. But ultimately, the only opinion that really matters about you is what God says. And that's the case here. What he sees, what he thinks, what he says, his judgments, those are the only ones that truly matter. People can't see the why you do what you do. They can only see the what. They can see what you do. But they can never dig down underneath and see the why. So all we deal with really is externals. Sometimes we guess about the why, though, don't we? Well, that guy, he's only doing it, so blah, 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 blah. But we don't know that. We don't know why people do what they do. God does. So Paul here is teaching that God cares more about the why than the what. That's pretty important. 
He cares more about why you do what you do than what you do. And he's the only one that can see the why. The why gives quality to the what. It gives moral value to it. And without love underneath the action, without love motivating the action, making it happen, it has no true value, we're told. So you may devote your time to the good of other people. You may be known as the person who's always there to help, the one that everybody can call. But only God knows the why you're doing it. Only he can see that. And you may be really smart with the Bible, good at giving the right word in the right moment, the person that everybody sends everybody else to. Well, you, here's my opinion, but you really need to ask such and such. But only God knows why you're speaking those words. What's underneath the reason why you're always available? Is it for the good of that individual? Or is it so that people might make much of you? And you may be the lady who's willing to give the proverbial shirt off her back to those in need at the church. You may be the one that's always there sacrificing your time for ministry. But again, only God knows why. He's the only one that can see that. And I may be the guy who stands in front of you each week and speaks the word of God to you. But only God really knows if I prepare and preach so that he looks good and you will bless his name or so that I will look good and you will bless my name. So God sees the hearts and he's the one who gives the well done. And we're clearly being told that the well done only comes to us for what we do that is motivated by love. So men and women, they can think what they want about what they see, and you can think what you want about what you do, but it is God who you will someday stand before. And in that day, you will not care what others thought on this day. Does that make sense? When you stand before God, all that stuff that you did, for whatever reason you did it, the only opinion in that moment that will matter will be his. You will not care about all those prior motivations. You care about his opinion or those prior opinions. You'll care about his. I guarantee you that. And only he will tell you on that day what passed the test. Paul talks about this earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, I think it is. He talks about works being burned up. All the junk, the stubble, the wood hay straw of your Christian service just goes up in smoke on that day. It might be the very stuff that you thought was most valuable. But when God weighs it all out, he'll tell you what was gold and what was straw. And right here we're being told what the determining factor of that is. Was it done in love? Was it? That's what makes something gold. It could be the smallest thing. We always think on big stuff. Man, he gave away everything he had. But Jesus talks about giving a drink of cold water to somebody in need. You didn't think anything of that. 
But in that moment, you gave it in love. You really cared about that person. Your heart went out to them. You desired to see their good in that moment, even though it cost you your water or whatever it was. It might be on that day that you stand before God when he says, oh, that was a beautiful moment. I loved that. Like, what are you talking about, Lord? When did I do that? As Jesus says, when did I serve you? When, do I, when did I do those things? You did when you served him in love. So often it's when our right hand doesn't know when our, what our left hand is doing. When, I think that, that, that point that Jesus is making there, when your right hand does know what your left hand is doing, it often means I'm doing it for myself. I've got some motivation underneath there to make myself look good. Other people will see it. But when I'm serving in love, I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking about them. And that delights the heart of our Savior. So how do we get this love that Paul says is so necessary? How do we get it? How do we make sure that what we are doing is truly the love that he's talking about here? And in coming weeks, we'll talk about the characteristics of this love and look more closely at it. For the rest of our time today, I just want to let you know this love flows to you from God himself. It does not derive from your own person or your own abilities your own temperament. So before I go any further, it needs to be said, if you do not genuinely delight in God himself, if you do not find him wonderful, if you do not find his qualities pleasing or excellent, you will not have the love for other people that Paul is talking about here. It's impossible. This is a love that flows downhill. Who here in this room had a father or a mother who you were so pleased with that you always wanted to do what delighted them? A couple of you, a few of you. (laughs) You might be able to think of somebody else though. Who is it that you admire more than anybody else? Not simply for the way that they love you. So often we love people who just love us. Jesus says even the pagans and the Pharisees do that. It's natural. We delight in those who delight in us. But what I'm talking about is there is a person in your life that when you look at them, there are certain qualities that you say, I love that about them. And because you love that about them, it causes you to be delighted in that person and to always want to do what is pleasing to them. My gosh, she's so courageous. She's bold but loving. Even when people are mean to her, she is kind in return. She's patient. That guy is always joyful in the Lord. Truly, it's not fake. Like, so who are those people in your life that you admire the qualities that are in them? And whenever you have opportunity to do something in relationship with them, you so desire to do what is pleasing to them because you delight in them. Now we're getting somewhere. 
That's the kind of love that Paul is describing here. We should have such a delight in the excellency of God in himself, not simply because he has loved us. Now, we are to delight in that. We delight in the gospel. We do. But he's putting his qualities on display in the gospel. Does that make sense? All of who he is as a God of love and purity and justice, all of those are on display in what he has done for us through Jesus Christ at the cross. That should cause us to look at our God and be so pleased with him in all of those excellencies that we should say in our hearts, I always want to do what is pleasing to that God. That's love. That's delight, a desire to delight the one whom I am delighted with. Ah, he pleases my soul, therefore I always want to do what is pleasing to him. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus had with his father, by the way. He looked at the father, always was pleased with what he saw there. Oh, he had an excellent father. And so, therefore, he always wanted to do what was pleasing to him. He loved his father's smile that caused him joy. This is love. And it starts with us delighting in the God who is supremely lovely. That's where it begins. Because there is no more excellent and pleasing person in relationship to us than him. No other person that is more worthy of devotion and love. And the heartbeat of any individual who says she knows him should delight to do what pleases him. Not out of a slave-like fear, but out of a desire to simply know his smile. That is the context from which Paul writes these words. That's where they come from. And so he is not simply telling us to conjure up good feelings toward people that we don't like. Maybe somebody's told you to do that before. Well, you just need to start feeling good about them, and then you'll start loving them. That's not what Paul is saying here. All of our obedience begins with a delight in God. And that delight will lead us to want to do what delights him. And the substance of what delights our God is love. And so it will lead us to desire to seek the good of another person at a cost to yourself, a joy in seeing their good because that pleases my God. That's what propels it. It's the spring that is underneath all of those actions. A delight to do what pleases him. And he has shown me his delight in this kind of love by doing what? By seeking my good at great cost to himself. He enjoys your joy. So he did what he did through Jesus Christ. And it will cause us an eternal joy. And he has now put his spirit in those who believe so that you can begin to do the things that express his heart. A heart that 
begins to delight in the delight of others and to serve them. That's biblical love. This is how Jesus can command that you love your enemies. What a strange command that is, right? What do you mean, love my enemies? Jesus, I hate my enemies. <laughs> I don't feel good toward my enemies. They're always mean to me. They make me feel really bad about myself and just bad about living. How can I love them? Well, from a top 40 billboard song context, you cannot. So if you understand love as simply being about the way that you feel toward other people, this will not make much sense. So Jesus is not telling you to feel warm toward your enemies. Love might do that eventually. We hope that it will do that at some point. But if there is no warmth, brothers, brothers and sisters, you should know that you can still love them. You can seek their good because you know it will delight the heart of your God. And again, our God has led the way in this. He has loved his enemies. And he continues to love his enemies up to this day. People who rebel against him and hate his name and scoff at them. He gives them marriage. He gives them children. He gives them jobs. He gives them rain on their crops. He takes care of them each and every day. He loves, seeks the good of his enemies. And so Jesus can very easily command his people to do that because we can seek the good of our enemies too, like our Father has. So before I get back to the actions that we have toward others, I just want to address your heart toward God. I don't want to leave that. You need to understand that you will never love others in a way that pleases God if you are not first pleased with God himself. So you cannot truly love others if you do not love the Lord. Again, love toward them flows downhill from your love toward him. So I ask, assess yourself. Look at your own heart right now and ask the question, do I truly delight in God? Not just say that I do because I know I'm supposed to. But when you think about the Lord, when you ponder his word, do his excellencies stand out to you? You don't just acknowledge him, you don't just pay him his due, but do you see him as worthy of all praise? Norm read this morning, Psalm 34, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Like truly. Have you tasted? You hear about other people who have tasted, but have you tasted and seeing that the Lord himself is truly good toward you and worthy of your praise for who he is. Could you speak clearly about the things that you admire about the Lord? And then does your life look as though you love the Lord by the way that you love other people because you know it delights his soul when you do? I've often talked about just my relationship with my own kids in this way. 
that my desire for them and their obedience is not one that just simply does what their dad says because they know they have to. Do the dishes, clean your room, whatever it is. I want them to desire to do what pleases me because they love me. That it's motivated by love. They delight in their father. And it grieves their soul to do what displeases me. How much more should we be this way in relationship to our heavenly father? When you know what delights his soul and yet do the opposite, it should grieve us deeply. And his word makes it very clear to us what delights him and what grieves him. And that's what we're being taught here. Love needs to be the motivating factor for why we do what we do. Love for God will lead to love for neighbor. When we think of passages of Scripture that tell us about who God is, it's all His Word. So He's communicating these things to us. But there is a particular passage that I had in mind where He speaks about Himself. And he describes who he is to Moses. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so when you read a passage of Scripture like that, do you think, oh, that's my God. He's faithful to me. We sing songs about how God will never let us down, that he is good, good, so good. They are not simply words to a tune. They are describing who he says that he is. Do you marvel at him? He's slow to anger. He abounds in love. He's holy and he is just. He does not just sweep your, rug, sweep your sin under the rug. He has dealt with your sin in love for you by sending his son. Jesus took your guilt so that you could be cleared, washed, forgiven. And it was love that did that. It motivated God to move in your direction, to meet your need at great great cost to himself. And when God plunges you into that love, his love, we begin to draw from his fountain to give that love to other people. So it starts with delighting in him and receiving from him what we do not have in ourselves to give on our own. He gives his love to us. And that is the measure of what Paul will be describing in the verses that follow. And that is why the unbelieving world cannot do what Paul describes in this chapter. You probably have come to mind many people who are probably more generous than you are. They're kinder than you are. They're sacrificial with their stuff more so than you are. 
And it's because they still possess something of the image of God in themselves. It is marred and scarred, but there is still something in there that would seek to do good. But their actions have no ultimate value because they are severed from the artery of the ultimate himself. They reject him and the love that he would give to them. And so the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. No faith, no love. Love flows from the faith that we have. It gives quality to the faith that we have. It causes us to serve lovingly in the faith that we have. So God is the source that the Christian who delights in him draws from. And next week, we're going to begin to examine the qualities of this love and what it looks like. But as we stop here, just again, one more question, maybe two, is needed from the text that we have here. I'm asking you this week to ask yourself at least one primary question. Why do I do the things that I do? Seeking to do good for somebody else, seeking to serve somebody else, why is it? And I, I don't want it to get to the point where you're constantly analyzing every activity you do to where you can't do anything. That's not what I'm getting at. I just want God's word to have its way in your heart so that you can assess your love. Am I doing this out of a love that God has given me to bring delight and joy into the lives of other people, or am I doing it for some other selfish reason? That's what I'm asking. Why do you do the things that you do? What force is underneath all of that, foundational to all of that, that gets the gears moving? Could it be a desire to look good? Could it be a desire to not feel guilty when you don't follow through? I think a lot of times our, our actions are motivated by that. I just don't want to feel bad if I don't do it. It's like there's something good to do, but man, I don't really want to. And actually, I don't even think that it's best that I do that. But I'm going to do it anyway just because I don't want to feel guilty because I should probably do it. I think a lot of times that's why we do what we do. It doesn't flow from genuine love. It flows because I don't want to feel guilty about myself or bad about myself. Does your action spring first from a delight in God that wants to do what delights God? And what is it that delights God? Doing good that will cause delight in other people, just as God has done for me. So brothers and sisters, this week, assess your love. Are you more motivated by self-love than what the Bible calls love? And this is sacrificial, God-honoring, other-oriented, agape, gospel love. That's what we are looking at here. And so our culture may be in love with love, but it's not in love with love like this. So the question for us, are we? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for your word. This is a serious word that cuts down into our hearts and should bring conviction to us, correction to us. 
a desire to love other people more like you have loved us, but also, God, a desire to love you more for who you are. Show us what Paul says here is the better way, the more excellent way. And may we grow, Lord Jesus, as a loving church, a truly sacrificial church, a church that when other people from the world do see it, they, they ponder, like, who are these people? How is it possible that they do what they do? And we will say it is because God has so done for us. Lord, lead us to have that kind of heart. And Lord, lead us to make that kind of impact on our community. That they would know that disciples of Jesus are here because we love like he does. Please smile upon this church and lead us, Lord, to always desire to be in your smile with what we do. We love you. We trust this time into your hands to work in our hearts as only you can. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.